All right. Happy Thanksgiving, family. If you're visiting, I'm Peter, and welcome to the Springs. Uh, our church is a part of a larger family named Every Nation, and we will spring forth unto every nation with more Jesus by growing in him and growing in being family with one another and growing in being his fishers unto men. Growing's a big deal, and that's why we have the best thing ever for growing, and that's this Bible. We're going to go into the Bible. We're in Genesis. We're towards the end of Genesis. We're towards the end of the year, in fact. In fact, we've been going through Genesis all year, and I'm really excited today to preach from Genesis 46 and 47. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Just leave your thumb there. Again, Genesis is where your story begins. And uh, just a nutshell, history in a nutshell, uh, God is the great creator and shepherd of humanity. And we, we are rebellious, obstinate sheep. Uh, I said that the nice way, don't worry. But listen, God nonetheless seeks us out and causes us from, from going down a path to death and leads us to a path to life. Really, that's the story of history. God is in the process of redeeming humanity. That's why I love to see in Genesis where it talks so much about redemption, God taking things back in these several chapters. Now, just a little pause for a minute to consider where we are in Genesis and how it relates to where we are in the year. On Thursday, all of us here in in America here celebrated a special holiday solemnized by our first president, George Washington. And he, he instituted this holiday to, quote, give thanks to God Almighty for his bountiful provision. The holiday was intended to commemorate and, and remember God's faithfulness to the Puritan pilgrims over 100, almost 200 years before Washington and the institution of this nation. Pilgrims that survived the, the, the really dangerous trek to get to the new land and to settle the first few winters here and the amazing provision God had on this nation at the start. The, the holiday was to look back and to remember the God of protection and providence. How many of you all know that remembering the, the purpose for which things are created is often going to be helpful for, for all of us? Amen? Now listen, though. As we consider the American pilgrims, I want to go even further back to a, a way earlier pilgrimage in Genesis 46 and 47. And if you're taking notes, I titled this message, The First Pilgrims. Now, as we go through these few chapters towards the end of Genesis here, I, I pray that you can trek with God's people in the pilgrimage of Israel to the land of Egypt. This unexpected pilgrimage didn't seem to be in the script. But I hope that in the midst of seeing what God was doing unexpectedly with them, you could really identify with the many unexpected turns that God has made in your life, outside of your plans, in your pilgrimage in life. And in fact, as we go through this, I pray that you can learn something about God that could revolutionize your life and reset you and how you think about the progress of your life and the journey that you're on and that we're on together. And that one thing about God is this. God goes before you, He works through you, and he's got your back. Okay? Everyone, look behind you and tell tell someone behind you, he goes before you. 
I feel like we're doing good here. Now, someone on your left or right say, he works through you. Now, now tap someone on the, in front of you on the shoulder and say, he's got your back. Nice. Family participation here. He goes before you. He works through you here in the midst of your pilgrimage, and he's got your back. First of all, he goes before you. Now, a little brief recap on how we get to, to chapter 46. Jacob and his sons have been through a lot of unexpected turns. Jacob, as a young man, left the promised land, promised to his family and his lineage, the land of Canaan. He left to go uh, east of there to seek his own provision. And he left someone running from God later as God would bless him anyway. How many of that, y'all, is that our story? God blesses us despite the fact that we're rebellious and wandering away from him. Well, God blesses him and even in the midst of his blessing draws Jacob's heart back to himself and draws him back to the land of Canaan where Jacob sees his sons grow up. Now, his baby his 11th son, Joseph, which was clearly his favorite at the time. His, the older brothers were very jealous of Joseph and tried to kill him, but instead sold him into slavery. Come back to Jacob years before chapter 46 here. They tell Jacob, hey, your son's dead. He's been eaten by wild animals. So here in the land of Canaan, although Jacob is following the living God, he is a man that really just wants to die. He's depressed feels like he's lost his, his son, his, his wife Rachel has died. He's not a super happy man. And here we pick up, in the midst of famine, we find that Jacob's sons go to Egypt, and through this um, one of the most amazing uh, little narratives in the Bible and in all of history, we see that Joseph, in fact, was not dead, but had risen up in the power and the ranks of Egypt after being sold into slavery, And God used Joseph to really redeem the whole earth in the midst of a famine. And so here we pick up in in chapter 46, where the brothers uh, have gone back to Jacob to tell their father Jacob that Joseph is indeed alive. And in the midst of this famine, we don't have to starve because he has a place for us in Egypt. Jacob now is considering, okay, My primal desire is to go and see my son, my long-lost son, who I thought dead. But he wasn't so quick to just do what he felt like doing in his heart. He wanted confirmation from God. That this, this doesn't seem, I've already wandered away from the promised land. I've already wandered away from the Lord. Why would I go to Egypt of all places? A symbol of sin? A symbol of worldliness? Why would I go to Egypt Am I really, is that really what God wants me to do? Well, what's amazing is on these strange pilgrimages of life, the the sojournings, the unexpected turns, God speaks to us to give confirmation. In fact, Jacob might have remembered his old granddad telling him of when God spoke to him. Keep your thumb in 46, but go all the way back to chapter 15. Over a century before, God spoke about this unexpected turn of his lineage to go to Egypt 
when he was speaking to the promise of Abraham and his children, long before Abraham even had children, verse 13 of chapter 15, chapter, verse 13 of chapter 15, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, pilgrims, in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. Some translations say slaves. They will be slaves or servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Not necessarily the word and prophecy you want to hear. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Now, most of the time when there's a difficult word followed by a resolution and redemption of the difficulty, we love to hear the redemption part. But the difficulty part's hard. And so here you have Jacob Wanting to know, am I really supposed to take all of my prodigy and my lineage all the way to Egypt? You know, he was willing to maybe, maybe I'm supposed to just wait here even though we're starving to death. And he sees this word, you know, it's, it has some difficulty in it. Serving for 400 years, slaves, affliction, some of that. But he was at home in the word of God. How good is that of God that before Jacob was even conceived... God was speaking to him about his life. He was speaking specifically. He was making himself known. Listen, y'all, unlike a lot of really good Wi-Fi networks, God is discoverable. He is discoverable. He doesn't just hide himself perpetually. God is not just a God who is disconnected and he's gone on a kind of a, a, an eternal hiatus from the earth that he created as some would be led to believe by their emotions or, or whatever else. God is very much intimately acquainted. And though we've distanced ourselves from him, and that's why we can, we can often be in confusion in the midst of our sin and, and disconnectedness, God still nonetheless continues to speak. He's discoverable. Many of us, maybe the journey of your life isn't what you've expected it to be. But you don't have to be in the center of your expectations to be in the center of God's will. In fact, in your life, God leads you in ways that you would have never expected. And not only does he do that, but he, he often and so often prompts you with confirmation with prophetic utterance. He still speaks to us. He still gives promise. He still is a promise-keeping God, even when it's not in the way that we expect it. In our pilgrimage, he speaks to us. He's not disconnected from us. This little trek to, to Egypt didn't seem like it was in God's playbook. It didn't seem the expected thing that was supposed to happen. And nonetheless, God had spoken it over a century before. And God's still speaking today. He's still bringing prophetic utterance to your life. The question is, is, are you listening? Is your heart softened to hear God's word? God speaks here. He goes before God's people. He goes before Israel, goes before Jacob with his word over a century before. And just in case Jacob missed that, here we are back in 46, Jacob's contemplating, should I, should I really go back here? The first few verses of 46 are pretty amazing. Verse, verse 2, starting with verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. 
said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. It's funny that the, the way these two words coincide. Great nation here and in 15, uh, a nation afflicted. It's no secret that what we call in our nation the greatest generation suffered much affliction with the Great Depression and the war. There's something about affliction and difficulty and overcoming faith that makes a people great. Anyway, side note. Verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. See, Jacob was, unlike in his younger years, very sensitive to the voice of the Lord. Wanted to be sensitive to obey the Lord. And the the Lord was so gracious with him to speak, to go ahead of him. And even though this wasn't what he expected, God was confirming that this was his will. Think about that in your life for a minute. If you would have had a convers if you could have a conversation with you from five years ago, do you think you would surprise you a lot about how today would look? Five years ago, did you would you have expected that you would be where you are now, doing what you're doing now, living where you're living now? Probably not. But do you think that's a surprise to God? Your pilgrimage might seem unstable to you or unexpected to you, but the one thing that's secure is not how we meet our own plans or any of those things. The one thing that's secure is the God who goes before you in life. And our, our job is not to be the architects of our lives, but to be the ones who trust in God in the midst of our pilgrimage. God is so good to us. He goes before us. And not only that, that as he goes before us, he speaks to us to draw us into his plan, to give us confirmation in the many turns of our pilgrimage. God goes before you, and number two, he works through you. Flip ahead a few verses. It's amazing. God's people now are, are, are going. Jacob decides, okay, I'm going I'm to go on this pilgrimage. I'm going to go into Egypt. Verse 28, he sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him into Goshen. Uh, That's uh, an important place that we'll talk about in a little bit. And they came to the land of Goshen. It was right outside uh, the main city of Ramesses where where Pharaoh lived, the, the headquarters of Egypt in essence. It was in Egypt, but yet set apart from the main part of Egypt, which is important. Verse 29, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his father's neck and wept on his neck a good while. In other words, a good minute. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, now let me die. I've seen your face and I know you are alive. This is a joyful moment of reunion here. I love how, especially in these last several chapters, it's almost like it's marked by these beautiful moments of grown men weeping all upon each other. It's a beautiful 
emotion-packed part of God's word here. Being reunited with your son, who you thought dead for years, and God has blessed him. You see the promise on you. This, in the midst of all the unexpected turns, you see the favor of the Lord that's matchless. It was amazing. See, Jacob was, uh, was in the middle of God's will, and he didn't know it. Even in the midst of famine and drought and suffering, when he really just wanted to die, God revived something. He, he took something back. He redeemed something that Jacob thought unredeemable. And then God starts to work through him. He, he sends Jacob into this unexpected land in Goshen and begins to work through Jacob and his family in an unexpected way, as we'll see through the end of this book and even into Genesis. This land of Goshen is very significant. It's a significant place, especially in the book of Exodus. It's, it's almost Egypt. Goshen is a place where they're, they're in the land of Egypt and yet set apart. Do you know the word holy means set apart? God's people are to be, quote, set apart, holy, in the world and not of the world. You've heard it said. Goshen is a place that's almost in Egypt. See, they're in Egypt and yet set apart. This, this land, Goshen, it's kind of like that place, okay, we'll give, you, we'll give you this whole land here. I mean, what good could come from Goshen? It's just like God in the pilgrimage of his people to use unexpected, seemingly overlooked or off the beaten path places to do major redemptive works in world history. Goshen, Nazareth, Galilee, San Marcos. God wants to do things in his people right up in the world and yet set apart. God will do unexpected things in Goshen, as we'll see. As we're going through this, I was studying a, a, a message from John Piper, who is a, who is a pastor in, in Minneapolis for uh, three decades. And he was preaching a message about the Christian pilgrimage, and he said something very intriguing about attention of the Christian life that we need to embrace. He said, Becoming a Christian makes one simultaneously at home in every culture and at odds with every culture. Simultaneously. It's, a, it's one of the beautiful tensions that we are to embrace, whether we're in Goshen, in the middle of the world power and yet set apart, or San Marcos, or anywhere we are. We are at a home in any culture and yet set apart. And this is, I want to I develop this tension for a minute here. This is important for our pilgrimage. There are those who are too at home and there are those who are too much at odds. And yet we're supposed to be in a right tension. There is no other faith that has the indigenous element the being at home in culture element like the Christian faith. In fact, it's really sad. You look back on part of modern missions about 100 years ago and Americans would go on missions to places like Africa and instead of exporting Christianity, they would ex export Americanism. 
So they'd see these African tribes beating their drums and they'd be like, oh, well, that's demonic. So stop doing that and let's wear a tie and, and do hymns and stuff like me. And man, it's like, well, why don't you do the same hymns with the beat, you know? <laughs> the Christian faith from the beginning has been something that unlike all other faiths and all other religions, you go into a culture, if they're doing it for the devil, then redeem it, take it back and now beat the drums for Jesus. We can be at home in any culture. There's just a few things that can't be redeemed. They just need to be rejected. That's another message. But there's nothing like the Christian faith that you can go into any culture, and it's indigenous to that culture. It's the way that we were created to worship. Jesus is the one who created us. And so whatever has gone wrong in a culture, you can make that thing right without having to get rid of it. Islam's not the same way. They take a culture and they go into that geography and they just plaster Islamic culture on that place. The language, the customs, the dress. That's not what we're supposed to do. In our pilgrimage, there's, not, there's an element of indigenousness. We're, we can be at home wherever we are. Goshen, St. Marcus, wherever we are. But listen, the tension, though, is, is that we, can be, we're, we are to be still, nonetheless, set apart. If God's going to work through us, we are to be at home and at the same time set apart. So though you have an indigenous principle that we are to live with, there's also the pilgrim sojourning principle. And we are to be at odds with culture. We are to be set apart. So in essence, it's this. Though we live in the midst of our culture, we are not to bathe in the filth of our culture. We're to be at home in our culture, and yet in, in, in the midst of our glorifying Jesus first, worshiping him alone, in our indigenousness within the culture, we are to take that filth and clean it by the purity of Jesus as he's cleaning us as disciples. We can be at home and yet at odds with many things in our culture. This is what God is doing with Jacob as he sends him here. Go to the next chapter. This is one verse. Verse 7 is so amazing. They go into Goshen, and then he approaches the Pharaoh. Verse 7, it says, Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Well, that's kind of scandalous right there. You would think he would say, you know, he stood before Pharaoh and he said, how dare you? You know, all the, you know, the righteous thing, the seemingly righteous things you could do. You're, you're not supposed to bless this guy. He's an enemy of Christianity or, or he's an enemy of the faith, right? You're supposed to tell him, how dare you have a war on Christmas or, or whatever else that you see conservatives whining about today. He goes and blesses him. I, I'm like, wait a minute. Now, where's the amens there? We're to redeem culture. He goes and blesses Pharaoh. He blesses him. He's not giving license to the filth and idolatry of Pharaoh. He's going in and speaking a word to Pharaoh. He's blessing him. Is he blessing Pharaoh's sin and enmity? No. He's going in and bringing redemption. God's people are to be at home in culture and yet set apart 
Because if we're not in the midst of that tension, we can't bless people. If we're not in the midst, if we don't embrace that tension rightly, then we're, we're going to have something off that doesn't work for God to move through us. He goes before you, and he moves and works through you. This is what Paul commands us to do in Romans 13. You don't need to turn there. He says that wherever you are, you're to be in submission to the rulers. Now, this is, these are rulers that were persecuting Paul. We're to be in submission. We're to bless. This is the way that Daniel blessed the king of Babylon. This is the way that Ezra and Nehemiah served and blessed the, the kings of Persia. And as American Christians, I feel like we've gotten things so wrong. Some of us are way too at odds with our culture. Always looking for another conspiracy theory about how, man, this earth, man, they stink. Well, of course they do, and so do you. And that's why Jesus is doing something in you so that you can do something about that. We're, some of us are way too at odds. And some of us are way too at home. To be pilgrims of Jesus, family, on this pilgrimage, we are to to be a blessing. And look, Obama hatred doesn't really fit with the Christian pilgrim principle. Either does Obama worship. There is a tension that we're supposed to worship King Jesus and submit to the rulers that he's placed around us. In fact, I want to read 1 Peter 2, because he preaches way better than me. 1 Peter 2, starting with verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, whether it's Obama, Bush, whoever the next person we're supposed to pray about. Keep your conduct, the, the police, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, Honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Man, that's some pilgrim language right there. Peter's unveiling the secret of the Christian pilgrimage here. I want to ask you, in, in your pilgrimage, what are ways that you are allowing or preventing God to work through you in the culture around you? Are you too at home in the culture? Are you too much at odds with the culture? In what ways does God need to adjust your mindset, your thinking, your schedule, so that you can be a more fruitful pilgrim, knowing that he goes before you and he works through you as a pilgrim, that is simultaneously at home and at odds with culture, a good sojourner. He goes before you, he works through you, and listen, he's got your back. I love reading what happens in and from Goshen in Exodus. It says that 
Centuries and centuries go by, and as it says at the start of Exodus, that a new Pharaoh rose up that didn't know Joseph, began to, as it promised in Genesis 15, began to persecute God's people. They became slaves, they, slaves, they became strengthened in the midst of that. And God began to, to do a work that would bring judgment on Egypt and free his people, a strengthened, renewed, empowered people. It was a redemptive work he did. But listen though, the plagues of judgment he brought upon Egypt. Goshen was a land that they had supernatural protection for everything that would come upon Egypt. Supernaturally, Goshen would be protected. Now listen, I believe that word is for you and me. Not that we'd be protected against all affliction. Listen, we'll face much affliction as, as God's people but we'll be protected unto his mission to do what he's called us to do as good pilgrims. Some of us will suffer casualties. Some of us fatality. But though they slay me, yet will I praise him. We'll have a supernatural protection in Goshen, which is symbolic of of the place of our mission. As we go together as pilgrims, to grow in being followers of Christ, family-focused, fishers for men, to be his disciples, to do what he, he calls us to do, there's an element of supernatural protection that the enemy just can't touch. And that's why we need, to, we need to be at home in being pilgrims. Listen, y'all, we talk about this whole thing about terrorism in the world. And I'm afraid too many people live in fear as if America is supposed to be this place that never suffers any affliction, never lets anyone in, never does anything from here. And listen, if you talk about terror, I've read the end of this book. The person who should be in terror is the devil. He's going to be thrown into a lake of fire. And let's bring terror on him by preaching the love of Christ as good pilgrims, even when it's dangerous. We're to be the dangerous ones. Muslims aren't our enemies. The devil is our enemy. And yes, he has, he's terrified some people, lied to some people. And therefore they do wicked things. And we're called to tell them the truth, even if it costs us greatly. And we'll have the supernatural protection of God on us. And you know what? I am so grieved by so much of the fear-based rhetoric I hear from politicians. But listen, Christians who are supposed to be pilgrims, whether it's the Syrian refugees or whatever else, that we're supposed to be in some sort of weird American conservative commune that nothing, nothing dangerous ever happens. Now, I'm all for protection for, for you know, the... I submit to the authorities who are not, they're not church authorities. They're, they're supposed to protect our nation and, and provide for the common defense and what our constitution says. But Christians, we're not supposed to live in fear. We're supposed to inflict, inflict the enemy with fear. We have something way more dangerous than the enemy has. If we would be good pilgrims, Hebrews 13, read it. One more verse. 
I'm going to reread what Thaddeus read earlier. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Maybe God in his goodness would allow for just the right amount of affliction and difficulty so that his people would be strengthened to do his will, to bring the utmost redemption as good pilgrims to a a dying world. Last thing I want to share with you this quote from John Bunyan's classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. He says, This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Would you stand to your feet with me, please? God sent his people to Egypt not so that they could be typical Egyptians, but so they could bring redemption. God didn't choose to make you born here today in America to be a typical American, but to bring redemption in Jesus' name in and from this place. Springing forth from here is the good news of Jesus. That's greater greater news than just uh, temporary peace and harmony. It's outright redemption. The good news is that the worst has already happened. The utmost consequences for your sin and mine and for the sins of the whole world, the wrath of God has already come upon one man, Jesus, who chose to come as a sojourner to a foreign land and to come into our midst and die the death that we should have died. And he rose again from the dead so that he could set us in right pilgrimage. And to be secure in him and not in any place or culture, to be at home in him. Now, if you've never fully given your life to Jesus, before you leave today, be at home in him. Do it even as we're praying. The rest of us, I pray during this song, before I come back up and close, we can look back on what he's done and thank him with hearts of gratitude for what he's already done and what he allows us, the way he allows us to live here on this earth. Pray that, that God would bring to you the right emotions to feel in this moment in response to what he's done. Pray that he would bring you the right way to live today as we remember back on what he's done. Ask him to flood you with his sentiment for you in your life, in your pilgrimage. Do business with God and I'll come back up and close. Thank you.